A doctor is charged in the death of an inmate at Las Colinas Jail. Elisa died on November 11, 2019. She'd been in jail for a few days at that point. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A discussion on the impact of Proposition 31. And it would ban most flavored tobacco products. So that includes flavored uh, e-cigarette cartridges, vape juice, uh, flavored chewing tobacco. The reasons behind the planned Kroger-Albertsons merger and the former co-anchor of ESPN's Sports Center, Jamel Hill, talks about her new memoir. That's ahead on Midday Edition. You've been thinking about helping KPBS with a donation. Why not donate that extra car you no longer need? Pickup is free, and you're supporting KPBS Public Media. Here's how. Visit kpbs.careasy.org. A doctor has been charged with involuntary manslaughter after an inmate in her care died at Las Colinas Jail back in 2019. Dr. Frederica von Lindig pleaded not guilty to charges in court on Wednesday. 24-year-old Lisa Cerna was found dead in her cell after suffering a seizure and hitting her head on the cell wall. Von Lintig faces up to four years in prison if convicted. Joining me now to talk about this is Kelly Davis, a freelance writer whose work appears in the San Diego Union-Tribune. And Kelly, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. Much of what is known about what happened leading up to Elisa Cerna's death comes from a lawsuit her family filed against the county. What can you tell us about what happened the day she died? Yes, Elisa died on November 11, 2019. She'd been in jail for a few days at that point. Uh, she was suffering from heroin withdrawal and pneumonia, and she had been vomiting. Um, she had very clear signs of dehydration. Uh, her skin was dry to the touch. Her blood pressure was very low. Her oxygen saturation level was very low. She was having fainting spells. And around 2 p.m. that day, um, so this was several hours before she died, uh, she appeared to have a, a seizure. So she was taken to see Dr. Von Lintig, who noted in Elisa's chart that she believed Elisa was seeking secondary gain which is a term used in medicine to refer to patients who are suspected of making up symptoms for to get attention or for some other benefit. So as the lawsuit says, the doctor did not take Elisa's vitals, did not examine her at all. Uh, Lisa was returned to her cell. And around 7 p.m. that evening, uh, a nurse, uh, Danali Pasqua, who's also been charged with involuntary manslaughter in this case, accompanied by a deputy, they went to Elisa's cell. They watched as Elisa suffered another seizure. She collapsed. She hit her head against the wall. Um, she was unconscious when she hit the floor. And this is all documented on, on surveillance video. And um, instead of summoning medical help, Nurse Pasqua and the deputy left the cell. And here I'm going to quote from the, the lawsuit. For an hour, no one came to the cell. During this time, Elisa can be seen on the video monitors dying and urinating on herself. The deputy station was immediately across the small hallway, but no one monitored Elisa, despite the fact she'd been placed in the medical observation unit. Elisa Cerna died on the floor of her jail cell. It was an hour before anyone discovered her body. 
So that is from the lawsuit filed by Elisa Cerna's family against the county. Nurse Stanley Pasquale was also charged with involuntary manslaughter. That happened last year. Her trial, though, begins today. Isn't that right? Yeah, correct. The preliminary hearing is uh, today. Now, it's been almost exactly three years since Elisa Cerna's death. Why has it taken so long for the DA's office to decide on charging Dr. Von Lintig? So first, the Sheriff's Homicide Unit investigated the cases as they do for all jail deaths. And as we saw, they, they decided about a year ago to, to submit the case to the district attorney's office um, for the nurse. And the DA's office did charge uh, Nurse Pasquale um, with involuntary manslaughter. And uh, the deputy DA in this case told me that, you know, they were reviewing everyone who played any part in, in Elise's death. And as far as Dr. Von Lintig went, they really uh, wanted to, to make sure they had a case there. So they had the state medical board review the case review Dr. Von Lintig's actions, and an expert said, yes, she absolutely acted improperly. And so that um, that took some time for that review to happen, and it gave the DA's office confidence that they did have enough uh, to charge Dr. Von Lintig. So um, I did ask if, if Dep- Deputy District Attorney John Dunlap, who um, headed, was heading up the case yesterday, um, I asked if he could elaborate on those findings by the state medical board. And he, he said he couldn't, but he did say, we charge people when we believe we can prove a crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, a sheriff's deputy was also on duty with the nurse Pasquale. Is that person also facing charges? Not currently. I did ask Mr. Dunlap about this, and he again emphasized the DA only files charges in cases they can prove. Um, but in February 2021, the Citizens Law Enforcement Review Board, which has oversight over the Sheriff's Department, not uh, Sheriff's medical staff, but sworn staff deputies, uh, they did uh, issue findings that the deputy who had accompanied Nurse Pasquale uh, violated department policy by failing to recognize and respond to Elise's medical needs. Now, a state audit earlier this year found that the San Diego County Sheriff's Department failed to adequately assess inmates' physical and mental health. What is the department's expectation of the medical staff to examine people in custody? Well, they reached out to the Sheriff's Department uh, for comment on, on the Lisa Cerna case and, and Dr. Von Lintig's um, arraignment yesterday. And they told me the Sheriff's Department is committed to providing compassionate medical services for the health, safety and well-being of everyone entrusted in our care. And they said they will they they have and will continue to follow strict protocols for investigating and responding to any allegations of misconduct involving uh, medical care of uh, folks in their jails. How has the Cerna family reacted to the news of these new charges against Dr. Von Lintig? Yeah, they were they were grateful. They're they're very grateful to the DA's office for the attention that they're giving to this case. Um, of course, all these. Um, hearings and stuff it's requiring they live in uh idaho and so it's requiring them to to come down to san diego and it's it's very emotionally trying for them but they were they were all there yesterday elisa's mother elisa's father and and her two sisters and um it was it was difficult for them it was very emotional but again they were they were very grateful for the the attention that this case was getting they they want justice for their daughter um they said she was a beautiful smart young woman she 
struggled with with drug addiction, but they they felt like she was, you know, really working to to overcome that um, at the time of her death. Kelly, last week you reported that the San Diego County Sheriff's Department is launching a pilot program that will outfit 10 of the downtown central jail's most medically at-risk people with a health monitoring device. Is the Sheriff's Department hoping this program could prevent deaths in custody? Yes, that's exactly why they launched the program, to to address deaths in custody. And uh, these these medical devices, these monitors, which are almost like a a Fitbit, you know, they go on a, a wrist or an ankle and they measure vital, uh, vital signs and they will alert someone, um, they alert a deputy if vital signs drop. Um, this is something that has saved lives in other jails. But as we see in Elisa's case, you know, in order to identify the most medically vulnerable folks in jails, um, we need the doctor to give that person a thorough review so a doctor can't just write someone off as making up symptoms. I've been speaking with reporter and writer Kelly Davis. Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. Among the seven propositions on the ballot this year, one takes a closer look at a state law passed in 2020 banning flavored tobacco products. Proposition 31 would uphold a ban on flavored pods for vape pens, electronic cigarettes, and other tobacco products to better protect kids and teens from tobacco use. That's what proponents argue. But opponents argue the law is unnecessary, saying sufficient protections for young people already are in place. Here to tell us more is Ben Christopher, reporter covering California politics and elections with CalMatters. Ben, welcome. Thank you. So what would Proposition 31 do if passed? So like you said, it would ban most flavored tobacco products. So that includes flavored uh, e-cigarette cartridges, vape juice, uh, flavored chewing tobacco. Uh, Most flavored cigarettes are already banned uh, at the federal level, but this would also ban menthol cigarettes. So we're not just talking the sort of exotic or kid-friendly flavors, but any flavor really. Uh, Although hookah products uh, would be exempt. So you mentioned hookah, but what else would be exempt? Yeah, so hookah is the big exception. There's also an exception for uh, certain types of cigars and loose leaf tobacco. And can you clarify what a yes vote and a no vote means for this proposition? No, it's a great question because this is a a referendum and this always tricks people up. So if you want to ban uh, most flavored tobacco products in California, you vote yes. If you don't, you vote no. Uh, This proposition is whether to keep a law that was passed by the legislature and governor in 2020. Uh, Why is it on the ballot now? Yeah, so the California Constitution allows any group that doesn't like a law that's passed by the legislature to to gather signatures to put it up for uh, for a vote. So we saw this in 2020 with a law that banned cash bail. Voters actually overturned that one. And in this case, you saw the legislature passed a bill uh, in, in 2020, as you mentioned, banning most tobacco pro- flavored tobacco products. Um, and obviously, the tobacco industry did not like that. And so they funded this referendum campaign. And so here we are. And so who's behind the effort to overturn this bill? So it's tobacco companies, uh, for the most part. And that's certainly where most of the money has come from. We're talking Philip Morris and RJ Reynolds. Those are the two biggies. And uh, as I mentioned, they did not like this, this bill that was passed by the legislature in 2020. And by putting it on the ballot, they actually uh, uh, froze the implementation of 
the the law until uh, this election. And so even if they lose, they still bought themselves uh, two extra years uh, reprieve. So this seems like an obvious question, but why didn't they like this law? And what's their argument for why it needs to be overturned? Yeah, so there's a, a pretty obvious business reason that tobacco companies don't want uh, some of their popular products to be banned. So there's that. But but you do have uh, sort of more high-minded arguments uh, for a no vote. Uh, that would be sort of the freedom argument that adults should be allowed to smoke uh, strawberry-flavored uh, tobacco if they want to. Uh, kids are already prevented by law from smoking. And if you ban these products, they're just going to be an underground market for them. So there's sort of the anti-prohibition argument. California decided in 2016 that prohibition of marijuana was a bad idea. And so they should make the same decision about flavored tobacco. That's the argument. So what are proponents of Proposition 31 saying? A lot of their arguments center on the fact that many of these flavors are more likely to appeal to kids or young people. You have candy and fruit and pina colada and honey and that kind of thing. And I think, of course, you know, the, the, the supporters of this come from the public health field. and Their ultimate goals is to reduce the number of smokers, period. And so by preventing these products uh, from, from being on the market that would appeal to, to kids, you're, you're, not, uh, you're, you're preventing that many more new lifetime smokers. There's also the argument that menthol cigarettes in particular have been marketed to Black consumers specifically for decades, and so they also make a racial justice argument as well. Do proponents of Prop 31 have confidence that the law will stick this time, given the fact that this law was previously passed? So there's no guarantee that just because the legislature does something, uh, voters are going to support it. As I mentioned in 2020, the legislature's ban on cash bail was overturned by the voters. But in this case, uh, the polling does look pretty good for the yes side. The, the last public poll that I saw was from UC Berkeley. They conducted it in late September and it had supported about 57% compared to 31% opposed. And given how much more, more money there is on the yes side, thanks to, to a lot of contributions from Michael Bloomberg, uh, I think things are looking pretty good for the yes campaign. I've been speaking with Ben Christopher, who covers California politics and elections for Cal Matters. Ben, thanks. Thank you so much. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman.
It's been just over a year since a teenager alleged she was gang-raped by San Diego State University football players at a Halloween party off-campus. However, no criminal charges have been filed, and SDSU says its own investigation is still ongoing. Meanwhile, KPBS reporter Alexander Wynne says a team of outside auditors is examining how the university conducts Title IX investigations. Last year, Jordan Rosenquist was just another freshman on SDSU's campus. Then, September 8th happened. I was sexually assaulted in a SDSU dorm hall. She immediately reported the alleged assault to the university's Title IX office, which is in charge of investigating allegations of sexual violence on campus. But instead of being helped, she says she felt pushback. So I did not feel supported by the SDSU Title IX office at all. I felt like I was more working against them than they were working with me. She says the university did not immediately inform her of her rights as a sexual assault victim. She had to hire a lawyer for that. That was not what's supposed to happen under Title IX, says attorney Jenna Ranghel. I think that when the school receives any report of um, sexual harassment or assault, they do have a duty to promptly respond and provide information about what um, their grievance process is, their investigative process, and then what supportive measures they might have available. Ranghel is currently representing the women's rowing team, who are suing SDSU for Title IX violation in sports, but is not a party to this case. SDSU isn't the only campus in the California State University system with issues surrounding Title IX. In fact, the CSU Board of Trustees ordered a system-wide audit of the Title IX process at all 23 campuses. The audit started in March at Fresno State, and auditors will be on SDSU campus in November. Ranghao expects auditors to thoroughly examine how SDSU Title IX office handles complaints. They are going to be looking at all instances in which complaints were made, how those complaints were made, meaning do they have effective policies and procedures in place and notices in place to where the people who complained were able to find that information easily. Rosenquist says the university needs to do a much better job of making victims feel protected. She talks about living in fear of her attacker even after getting a restraining order against him. I felt so much anxiety every single day when I was on campus because I even brought the restraining order to the uh, San Diego State Police Department and officials on campus. I gave a copy to Title IX and he actually violated that restraining order and I reported it and they did nothing about it. Rosenquist says SDSU Title IX office told her they waited to investigate her allegation because it's policy to wait until after the police investigation is over. In a statement to KPPS, SDSU says no such policy is in place. But this was the same reason SDSU gave for not starting its investigation into the rape allegation against three football players at a Halloween party off-campus last year. That incident happened roughly a month after Rosenquist alleged assault. That hit a chord with me because I really felt for that person because although our incidents were not the same, I knew what they were going through. The university says it was asked by police not to start its own investigation because doing so might taint the criminal investigation. 
This is not the first time there has been a Title IX audit at SDSU. In 2014, an audit found that SDSU faculty and staff were not sufficiently trained in responding to and reporting sexual assaults and harassment. The report also faulted SDSU for not requiring students to undergo yearly sexual assault and harassment prevention training. Since then, the university has mandated the training for all students and staff Rosenquist hopes the new audit will lead to much-needed changes to the Title IX office at San Diego State. They really need to push for protecting their students and protecting their survivors that have gone through this rather than just um, kind of being passive in the process. That story was reported by KPBS's Alexander Wynn, and he joins me now. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me again. The student you spoke with, Jordan, says she had to hire an attorney to find out her rights after reporting an assault to SDSU. Is she actually suing the school? Um, She is not suing the school. The lawyer was just to help her navigate the process of reporting the sexual assault and filing criminal charges against her alleged attacker. And we are saying alleged here as he has not been convicted of any crimes. Was her assault investigated by SDSU? And if it was, what was the outcome? Uh, Yes, it was investigated by the SDSU's Title IX office. The case was more or less uh, concluded earlier this month, and he was found to have violated the school's policy on sexual assault and violence. And I just want to make it clear that the burden of proof for a Title IX investigation is much lower than a criminal investigation. The burden of proof is uh, what is known as the preponderance of the evidence, meaning it, you know, that it was more likely than not that something happened. And she has recommended that the school expel her alleged attacker, which is a hollow victory because he has left the university and returned to Dubai. Now, she says she reported a violation of a restraining order against her alleged attacker, and the school did nothing about it. How is the school supposed to handle a situation like that? Well, once the university police department, uh, that's the campus police, receives the notice that someone has violated a restraining order, they're supposed to immediately start an investigation, uh, review the terms of the order. Um, If it was found that someone did violate a restraining order, you know, they could arrest the person. And what does SDSU say about the claim that they did nothing? Well, the university said it couldn't comment on a specific case and once again referred back to its policy on restraining orders. Now, Jordan says the Title IX office told her they'd have to wait to investigate until after the police investigation was finished. And as you point out, that's what the woman who has alleged a gang rape by SDSU football players has said she was told by the school, too. Now, SDSU says that it has no such policy? Yes, uh, the school says there is no blanket policy to wait until the police investigation is over. In the alleged football gang rape case, the university said it was asked by police not to start its own investigation because it might interfere with the criminal investigation. Um, The attorney I talked to in the story said the Title IX doesn't have a guidance on whether schools could start an investigation while police investigation is going on. So it's up to each individual schools. But that attorney also said there is no reason why both the Title IX and police investigation couldn't happen at the same time. Um, They are looking for different things. The police are looking for a proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. 
while the Title IX office is only looking for the preponderance of the evidence. Do we know how many sexual assaults are reported by SDSU students each year? Uh, Yes, we do. Uh, The school releases a Title IX report on sexual violence and misconduct each academic year. At the end of June 2021, which is the last year of the report, there were 18 reports of sexual assault, misconduct, stalking, and domestic violence by students. That's just all one category. And a good number of those were resolved without an investigation because either the student who filed the report did not want to file a formal complaint or didn't respond to outreach by the Title IX office. Um, There were only two cases in which the person accused was held responsible resulting in one expulsion and one suspension. What is the relationship between the Title IX office and the SDSU administration, campus police, etc.? Do they work in unison on cases like this, or are they separate entities? The Title IX office does the investigation, and if there are safety concerns, the campus police help escort the victims and enforce the temporary suspension order if there is one, or a no-contact order, again, if there is one issued. The administration makes sure that the survivor is referred to uh, support services, such as a sexual assault victim's advocate. Okay, so another Title IX audit is coming next month to SDSU. Do we know how long that will last? It's going to last three days. Uh, The auditors will talk to the Title IX office, the victim advocate, faculty, staff, and students. And this is part of a system-wide audit of all 23 Cal State University campuses, and it started back in March. It's not expected to be completed until the spring, so if we're being optimistic, we can expect to see um, results by summer. Uh, One thing I want to note is that while reporting on this story, I found that there is a wide disparity in the Title IX process between campuses. The only consistency I found is that there are no consistencies. Um, It'll be interesting to see what the audit report says. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Alexander Wynn, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. A measure to legalize online betting in California, Prop 27, has created a record-spending war between gambling companies who support the measure and many California tribe governments who oppose it. As KQED's Guy Maserati and CAP Radio's Nicole Nixon explain, the measure has sparked a debate over the issue of tribal sovereignty. Most of the California tribes who have weighed in on Proposition 27 are against it. But if you've seen yes on Prop 27 ads, you've probably noticed the guy in a bright red shirt. Prop 27 supports financially disadvantaged tribes that don't own big casinos. That's Moak Simon, chair of the Middletown Rancheria of Pomo Indians in rural Lake County, north of Napa. For much of the summer and fall, his face was a constant presence on TV in support of Prop 27. By taxing and regulating online sports betting for adults 21 and over, we can protect tribal sovereignty and finally... Middletown Rancheria is one of three tribes that supports Prop 27, but Nicole found that more than 50 tribes oppose it. They're worried in part about language tucked away in the measure that could potentially undermine tribal sovereignty. Sovereignty refers to the inherent right of tribal nations to govern their own lands and people. And in California, they also have exclusive rights to offer casino-style games on their lands, if they have the resources for gaming. Jeff Butler is general counsel for the Yochadihi Wintun Nation, a Northern California tribe that operates a casino resort. 
He says many tribes are skeptical of Prop 27 because it would require them to sign new agreements with big companies like FanDuel or DraftKings to offer online sports betting. But the problem with that is that to do so, the tribe expressly must waive its sovereign immunity. Uh, it's got to allow itself to be sued. Um, and, and that is a, it's, it's a non-starter with respect to tribes. Sovereignty is crucial to tribal cultures, especially after generations of genocidal policies from European colonizers that resulted in the death of hundreds of thousands of Native people, stolen lands, and fractured tribal identity. These policies continued well into the 1960s, says Jolie Proudfit. She directs the California Indian Culture and Sovereignty Center at Cal State San Marcos. What makes a tribe is its people. And the tribe having the the wherewithal and the resources to govern its people and its lands and its waters is critical. So to lose that and just have the people blend into society as simply another racialized group is really harmful to tribal peoples. Proudfit says tribal gaming and casinos have helped pull tribes out of poverty and provide essential services like health care and housing. Tribal sovereignty is wonderful, um, but having the resources to enact tribal sovereignty are critical. And that point about resources is why Moak Simon, the tribal chairman featured in the Yes on 27 ads, finds himself on the other side of dozens of tribes. Middletown Rancheria has looked at the opportunities for us to grow for the next seven generations, and we're limited. The roughly 250-member tribe runs the Twin Pines Casino and Hotel, but it's not a big gaming operation. For Simon, the chance to partner with an online sports betting company could bring money for economic development and the potential to buy back tribal lands. This is just an opportunity for one tribe to make a decision, a sovereign decision, on how they're going to move their people forward. Polls show Prop 27 looks headed to defeat, but these questions of tribal sovereignty and sports betting aren't going away, as the issue could be back on the ballot again in 2024. I'm Guy Marzarati. And I'm Nicole Nixon. The supermarket chains of Kroger's and Albertsons announced their plans to merge last week, leaving employees nervous and customers confused. The merger of the brands that include Ralph's and Vons is valued at almost $25 billion. The combined supermarket powerhouse would gobble up 19% of the grocery market. So is this a good thing or a bad thing? Industry expert, journalist Benjamin Lohr says good or bad, it may be inevitable if the chains want to survive in an unsustainable business model. Joining me is Benjamin Lohr, author of The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. And Benjamin, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So what are some of the other statistics surrounding this proposed merger, like how much potential profit, how many stores and employees would it involve? Yeah. I, I mean, this is a mega merger in every sense of the word. You're talking 5,000 stores that stock our food, 50 manufacturing centers that make our food, and over 700,000 workers who are picking, stocking, sweeping the floors and ringing registers, delivering food. This would be a $200 billion deal, which amounts to almost 20% of the entire gross, trillion dollar grocery market. Now, in a recent LA Times article, you described the competition Kroger's and Albertson are facing. Where is it coming from? Yeah, grocery has become increasingly consolidated. It's one of the most, it's the most concentrated it's ever been. 
Um, and you've just seen an incredible winnowing of chains. So when we talk about Kroger and Albertsons, you might not have ever stepped foot in one, but you certainly recognize one of the 33 banners that they've kind of collected over the years from Ralph's to Vaughn's to all the way down the line. And that's just a graveyard really of banners that these firms have gobbled up as they've grown bigger. In that they mirror the grocery industry as a whole, Walmart right now sits with about a 27% share of the grocery market. Costco, no slouch, has a somewhere around a 9% share of the grocery industry. It's an incredibly consolidated industry. The top five firms control about 60% in uh, highly concentrated market areas. You make the case that the current supermarket business model is unsustainable. Why is that? Well, it's unsustainable for a lot of reasons. Probably the, the foremost and easy, most easily graspable is they're trapped in a race to the bottom of their own making. In grocery, size is everything. It's a low margin business. And the way to make a profit in a low margin business is through volume, tons and tons of volume. That has been incredibly successful from a historical perspective and in a competitive marketplace actually brings a lot of savings to the consumer. As that model continues, it inevitably shrinks the marketplace and then causes a lot of the, the same forces that were bringing benefits to consumers start to act against consumers and really consolidate profits among a few small chains. Supermarket employees find themselves squeezed in this race to the bottom. How do labor organizations that represent those workers feel about this deal? Yeah, when you're in a model where prices need to be cut because you're competing for consumers, the place that comes out of inevitably is labor. And so there's no secret that this will be bad for labor and uh, labor organizations are already coming out against the deal. The two corporations in question say that a merger would pass on savings to customers. Is that possible? There is a lot of talk about synergies with scale. And traditionally, in a competitive marketplace, you would take those synergies, which corporate buzz speak, for efficiencies of scale and, and pass those on to consumers in, in the form of lower prices. The problem is the marketplace is no longer competitive enough to ensure that these firms will do that. And when we look at prior record, just how they behaved during the pandemic, when they were raking in record profits uh, at a time when pricing was kind of out of control, I think it's clear that they're not incentivized to, to do that. And that it's very likely that those savings will just go in to corporate buybacks, executive bonuses, and profits. Is there another business model for grocery stores that would be healthier for U.S. supermarkets to adopt? Right now, there are some interesting things that are going on. Look, Costco has a membership-based model that although they control a, a large percent of the market, they don't operate in the same way that a Kroger and Albertsons do. Um, their number one objective is making their members feel good about things. There are small independent stores that really specialize in food knowledge, that specialize in local purveyors, that specialize in providing optionality. That's a different model that I think has some legs. It's difficult though. The savings that you get through scale are enormous and it's been a tremendously profitable and successful model for a reason, that it passes on savings to consumers um, for a long time. That seems like it's changing with this consolidation, but it's it's very scary to break from something that's worked for so long. If this merger does go through, what kinds of changes do you think supermarket customers will notice? Well, look, a lot of the savings come from the benefits of uniformity. So I, I don't think this merger is going to suddenly favor more seasonal products by local, small, mid-sized 
producers. I don't think there's going to be a rash of craft brewers showing up on your shelves. The The savings come from the uniformity, which comes from uh, a slimming down of optionality and turning to the same, you know, consolidated group of suppliers to provide those savings. I think prices, it turns out that consumers are terrible at noticing prices. So there might not be a perception of raised prices, but I think there will be small raising in prices. Um, and there'll just be less choice in a lot of market areas. There's simply less store optionality where you're, you're choosing between less places to go shop. I've been speaking with journalist Benjamin Lohr, author of The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. And Benjamin, thanks a lot for joining us. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Sports journalist Jamil Hill has shattered glass ceilings and made a career out of exploring the intersections of sports, politics, race, culture, gender, and so much more. As an Emmy Award-winning former co-host of ESPN Sports Center, the 2018 NABJ Journalist of the Year, and contributing writer for The Atlantic, she is known for telling hard truths. And in her new book, Uphill, Jamil shares the story of her work, family, and relationships and she joins us now. Jamil, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. So first, you know, what inspired you to write this book and why was it so important uh, to be so transparent about your life? Well, I think most people have the expectation when they decide to dig into a memoir, like they really want to learn about the person. They want to know what shaped them, what was important to them, their mistakes, triumphs, failures, all of those things. And Given what my career has been as a journalist, I could not imagine, you know, writing a memoir and not being truthful and transparent. Um, you know, it kind of goes against the grain and the core tenets of journalism. So if that's the expectation that I have when I sit down with the subject, it felt like it would be insulting to the audience if I did not deliver um, the same honesty and truth and authenticity that I think um most of us want to see in the people that we choose to listen to. One of the things that you talk about in your book is the backlash that you received when you called Donald Trump a white supremacist. Why was it so important to be so direct with your words um, as a journalist and at that moment in time? Well, at that moment, I didn't really think I was saying anything revolutionary. I mean, I thought it was kind of obvious. So that's why I think in my book, I refer to it as one of the most unoriginal things I've ever said. And I was just as surprised as anybody by the intense backlash. I thought at that point, especially this is post Charlottesville, that America had fully understood the element that was in the office of the president. But clearly that wasn't the case. Uh, I do think some of the backlash and the reaction was rooted in the who and the where. The who being a black woman, the where being ESPN. I didn't say this on the air, of course. I said it on social media. But because it's, it's so closely aligned to my identity being a sports anchor at ESPN, I think it was the 
um, the unlikeliness of it coming from somebody like me who represented the company I represented at the time. You know, maybe it would have been different if I worked at CNN or a news outlet that traditionally covers politics. But because I was coming from a sports space, I think that drew a different kind of attention. How important do you think it is for journalists and news organizations to be direct in describing uh, these sorts of things, in saying when something is racist, just saying it, when someone is a white supremacist, just saying it? How important is that? Well, I think it's really important. And frankly, I think the media has abdicated their responsibility, not just in telling the truth about racism, but also in telling the truth about a lot of things, about the fate of our democracy, about our political climate. You know, we keep trying to hide behind the false shell of objectivity. Objectivity is not what you should strive for as a journalist. You should strive for fairness. That's different. Um, and you should strive, you know, to obviously tell the truth. You know, that truth may be on one side or the other. And if you, um, you know, if anybody's familiar with what are some of the core values that are supposed to be part of journalism, certainly ones that I heard throughout my career as I was coming up as a journalist, it was being a watchdog of society. It was holding people in power accountable. How can you hold people in, in power accountable if you don't tell the truth, if you don't ask questions, if you don't inspire people to critically think? That's the whole point of journalism. So I think by uh, the media, in, in many cases, just not being courageous enough to do this. I mean, a, a lot of it is because media is so corporate and behind these corporations are people who are kind of invested in the chaos. And also there are people who support some of the political candidates or the people uh, or the institutions that need to be most checked. And um, it's because of that that, you know, you wind up getting a very cowardly approach to some of the serious issues that we have in this country. Something else you talk about in your book was your salary, the salaries that you made at ESPN, for example, and you gave insight into the contract uh, negotiations. Why was it so important for you to do that? Well, I do think that we've all usually been taught like not to share those kind of things that somehow is taboo, but it's really our greatest weapon in many cases to being undervalued. Because if you know what a company has to work with, or if you can understand what the landscape is, I think it makes you more informed and a sharper negotiator when it's your time to negotiate a contract. Uh, and it was also, you know, my way of showing the difference between perception and reality. You know, when I first got to ESPN, the perception is that every contract you get, you're going to make an obscene amount of money. And that's not really true. I mean, my first contract by the standards of the contracts that I had overall at ESPN was was pretty terrible. <laughs> it was the worst one. You know, I felt like a new artist that got the record deal, and we know that first deal <laughs> is just never going to do you right. <laughs> so, um, so I think people, because I was at ESPN, just assumed that, um, you know, I just was balling and rolling in dough. And I think for black women who tend to be at the lower rung of the pay scale, it's really important that we share that kind of information so that we can truly capitalize on our worth. You describe yourself as unbothered. What do you mean by that? I think the the word sometimes makes people arch their eyebrow because it seems like that it's giving, I don't care. 
but that's not what it's supposed to mean. It's supposed to mean when you reach a point in your life where you're so comfortable in your own skin, where you don't really need validation in order to stick and stay in, in your truth and you don't need it as something that helps you program your every move, then you reach a state where you you divorce yourself from caring about what other people think and how other people are judging your life. What do you hope people take away from your book? Well, I hope that people understand that even in pain and trauma, there's purpose. I hope they also understand the importance and value in getting to learn the full selves of the people they most care about so that you can understand their perspective. You're not saying you have to agree with it, but you can at least understand it. And more importantly, it leads to them getting more grace from you. What are you working on next? Um, <laughs> I feel like uh, I got 62 jobs now. But, you know, one of one project that's front of mind is uh, I'm executive producing Colin Kaepernick's uh, documentary, his 30 for 30 that will, uh, you know, be on ESPN. And that's been a fabulous experience with working with Spike Lee, who's directing it. Um, I'm also um, launching a podcast network with Spotify, the Unbothered Network, which is uh, for black women, centers black women, black women led. And the first two podcasts in the network are dropping the first two weeks in November. Uh, black Girl Bravado, which was an existing podcast that we licensed and um, Sanctify, which is an original that addresses the modern way in which black women worship, um, touching on all the taboo topics uh, in the church that go addressed and unaddressed, particularly the things that happen outside the, the pulpit and the pews. And so I'm really excited about both of these projects. It sounds fascinating. Uh, congratulations to you on your upcoming projects and the release of your book. Thank you. I appreciate it. I've been speaking with sports journalist Jamil Hill, whose memoir, Uphill, is out now. Jamil, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.